Tonight we begin a short series in the book of Ruth. Uh, it's one of two books that is named after a woman in the Bible. And it's the only book named after an ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Ruth is again mentioned in the New Testament in the genealogy of our Lord. What makes uh, it unique is that this book, or Ruth, from whom the book is titled, is not even an Israelite, a nation that was chosen by God in the scriptures. Rather, Ruth is a Gentile, like most of us. It's a heartwarming story that takes place almost 3,000 years back in ancient Israel, really in a period that is marked by immorality and idolatry and war. So it's a, it's a rose among thorns. Uh, it, it is a beauty amongst the ugliness found around it. Uh, it's about the grace and providence of God that shines through the depravity of man. But you might ask yourself, why should we study the book of Ruth? And there are a number of reasons why we need to study this book. Well, first of all, because it is in the Bible. We want to study this book because it is in the Bible. And we know from God's word that all scripture is inspired by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that the man of God, the woman of God, is fully equipped for every good work. That's why we need to study the book of Ruth. But secondly, we also want to study this book because it bridges the gap between the period of judges and the period of the monarchy. Now, the book begins, as we will look at it today, with a family in Bethlehem, and then it ends in chapter 4 with the genealogy of Israel's second and greatest king, King David. We want to study this book then because it bridges the gap between judges and the monarchy. Thirdly, we want to study this book because it is an account of hope. It's an account of hope. The times in which this story takes place is, morally speaking, dark. It's the time of the judges, started somewhere around 1380 BC, ended around 1045 BC. Uh, and this period is frequently marked by a refrain, a, a phrase that is repeated in Judges. It's found in Judges 21-25 is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we'll see, we'll see some of that even as we begin this book together. And what Ruth does is that it shows us that in the midst of such anarchy, anarchy or anarchy, uh, we have hope, hope uh, that God is continuing to redeem a people for himself, a people from all nations and all tribes. So we want to study this book because it is an account of hope. But fourthly, we want to study this book because it is or it has an example that we can emulate. In Ruth, we have been given an example that we need to look up to that we can emulate. She's described in Ruth chapter 3 verse 11 as the woman of excellence. The same expression is used for the woman described in Proverbs 31. In fact, there are some who have argued for placing Ruth not between Judges 
and 1 Samuel, but after Proverbs because of what is mentioned in the book of Proverbs. It's an example that we can emulate. But fifthly, we want to study this book because it establishes the fact that women are co-heirs with men of God's plan of salvation. They're co-heirs with men of God's plan of salvation. You know, in an era that we all live in that is clouded by phrases such as feminism and women's right and the women's right movement and all of that, which, by the way, do exactly opposite of what they say they stand for, we have in the Bible, in God's word, women who are consistently portrayed with men as fellow image bearers of God. Women are fellow heirs of the grace of life, says Peter. So we want to study this book because women are co-heirs with men of God's plan of salvation. Sixthly and finally, it is an account of redemption. We want to study this book because the account of Ruth is an account of redemption. You know, the book is titled Ruth, but it could very well have been titled Boaz. Because Boaz, as we shall study, fulfills the role of a kinsman redeemer. Uh, the, the picture, the concept, is one of an earthly, on an earthly level, is a relative who uh, it, at his own expense pays off the debt of another. Uh, the term redeemer occurs in different forms at least 23 times in this short four-chapter book. And Boaz, in acting this way, is a type of Christ. And in Ruth, we see the story of our own redemption. It's an account of redemption, but in it we have a story even of our own redemption. Let me begin by first providing a brief overview of the book. Ruth is a book that is tucked between the books of Judges and First Samuel. Or Samuel, it's a brief book of four chapters and only 85 verses. I timed myself, took about 13 to perhaps maybe 15 minutes to read this book. You can read it tonight and check off one out of 66 books for this year. It's a short book. Who is the author of this book? Well, the author is not mentioned in the book itself, nor in any other books of the Bible. But many attribute this book to the prophet Samuel, which is actually not a bad choice. However, Samuel died before David was coronated as the king. He anointed him, but David actually became king after Samuel died. We can't point with certainty then who the author is. We can say that most likely the author lived during David's reign as king, and we will see him reign as king in 1 Samuel. And at the end of this book, there's no mention of Solomon. Uh, and therefore, we can say someone during David's reign wrote this particular book. But the anonymity of the author, the fact that we don't know who the author is, does not take away from the spiritual value and significance of this book. Secondly, what can we say about the date and the setting of the book? As I've already mentioned a few times, the events in this book take place during the time of Judges, a period that lasted for about 335 years or so, 1380 to 1045 BC. Uh, this particular period, if you were to read the book of Judges, which is 21 chapters, uh, is a period that is marked by wickedness and sin 
related to idolatry and immorality. We cannot say with certainty where we can place the book of Ruth in the period of the judges, but it's interesting to note two things about the date and setting of Ruth. You know, Ruth immediately follows Judges chapter 21. And from Judges 17 to Judges 21, we have recorded for us two events that take place. And the ground zero for both of those events is actually Bethlehem. Both of those events take place in Bethlehem. In chapter 17 and 18, we have the failure of Israel through idolatry. Uh, That's connected with someone who was from Bethlehem. And then in chapters 19 till the end of the book, we see the failure of Israel through the gross immorality that takes place there. And so as we come after these two events in Bethlehem, the book of Ruth then uh, forms a a trilogy, uh, a, a third account that takes place in Bethlehem. In the book of Judges, the one where this account is set, its focus is on immorality. We see a lot of immorality in Judges, but in Ruth, we see fidelity and righteousness and purity. In Judges, we see a model of following false gods, but in Ruth, we see a model of following the true God. In Judges, we see a decline a debasement and a disloyalty towards Yahweh, where in Ruth we see genuine devotion. In Judges we see lust, but in the book of Ruth we see God-honoring love. The book begins then in a place called Bethlehem, and then it takes us to Moab, which is also chapter 1, and then there is a return from Moab, to Bethlehem, all in the same chapter, and then we remain in Bethlehem till the rest, till the end of the book. The key theme of this book is kinsman redeemer, kinsman redeemer. Let's begin then this fascinating account of love and devotion and faithfulness and and commitment. If I had to put a theme to our chapter tonight, We are not going to cover the entire chapter. We're going to cover 21 verses. That means uh, we will cover most of the chapter except the last verse in the book. If I had to put a theme to this chapter, it would be this. Even when God's people experience suffering, God is present in his provision and care for them as they respond to him by returning to him. Even when God's people experience suffering, Anyone here who has never experienced suffering as God's child? Notice the theme. Even when God's people experience suffering, God is present in his provision and care for them as they respond to him by returning to him. And so I've titled this lesson, The Return. The Return. And as we go through the chapter, you will recognize why we have done that as the title. Let's begin then as we look at the first section of this particular book. We begin with looking at the setting for the suffering. Notice chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed, and there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab, 
with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Maholon and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab, and they remained there. We're told about an account that took place in the period of the judges, which tells us really that the recording of the account takes place much later, but the events in the account itself take place during the period of Judges. It is a period that follows the death of uh, Joshua, the, the man who led military campaigns to capture the land that God had promised the Israelites. So Judges follows the book of Joshua. And we have a number of judges mentioned in that book who were appointed by God to maintain justice, settle disputes, and deliver people from their enemies. But it was a period that was marked by repeated cycles of Israel's rebellion and, of, of, of Israel's rebellion and, and sin, followed then by God's discipline. And that was then followed by repentance from Israel, and then ultimately by God sending a judge to deliver them. So Israel rebelled and sinned. God disciplined them, they repented, and then God sent a judge to deliver them. And that cycle kept repeating. The story of Ruth is then set in such a cycle of sin and disobedience. And there was famine in the land, we are told in verse 1. Now famines were repeated occurrences in the Middle East, but when recorded in the Bible, especially after uh, the exodus, that is when they came out of Egypt, uh, famines generally point to judgment and displeasure on God's part. Uh, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Notice verse 17. I want to read verse 16. Be aware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit. And you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. If they turn away and serve other gods and worship them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against them. And he will shut up the heavens that there will be no rain to follow. And the ground then will not yield its fruit. In other words, there will be famine when there is disobedience. And this particular famine, if you were to go back to verse 1, is something that exists all over Israel. It's all over the land, it says. But now the story in the same verse focuses on one family. Perhaps lots of families did lots of things uh, in response to this famine, but we are focusing on one family. This man is from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, it's ironic that here is a man, and he is from Bethlehem. Beth means house, and Lechem means bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. It's ironic because in the house of bread, there is no bread. We are told in verse 1, he went on a sojourn, or went to sojourn, that is, he took his wife and family and left for Moab. Uh, the word sojourn actually tells us something of the intention of this man. And the word sojourn actually means to abide or dwell. 
but it also means to be a stranger in another land. What that tells us is that this man did not intend to stay in Moab for too long. His plan perhaps was to stay in Moab for a few days, or perhaps as long as the famine lasted, and then come back to Judah or Bethlehem. What can we say about the people that he is going to live with? Who are these Moabites that are mentioned in verse 1? The Bible tells us that they are the descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. It was through an incestuous relationship with his daughters that the Moabites and the Ammonites were born. We have covered that chapter in Genesis 19, verse 30 to 38. Uh, That is how these people group were formed. It was an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. What more can we say about these people? Well, these were pagan people. They worshipped a different god. And while they worshipped different gods, the main god among those gods was the god Chemosh. So they were idol worshippers. In fact, one of the things that this god demanded from them was child sacrifice. What more can we say about the Moabites? Well, they resisted the Israelites. Remember when the Israelites were rescued from Egypt by God, and as they were returning or coming to the promised land, they went across the Dead Sea and were coming back towards the west, that is the promised land. And Moabites who lived there, they resisted these people coming through. They did not allow them to come through, so the Israelites had to take a longer route to get to the promised land. In fact, the Lord took that as, as, a, as a rebellion against him and in fact gave instructions in Deuteronomy 23 that the Moabites, because of this action, were to be excluded for at least 10 generations from gathering with the Lord's people. So they resisted the Israelites. They did not allow them to pass through that land. In, also another account tells us that the Moabite women were involved or accused of seducing the Israelite men for which the men were later punished, mentioned in Numbers 25. And then more recently, in Judges chapter 3, we have the Moabite king Eglon, who oppressed the Israelites. And now we are told in the book of Ruth that Elimelech is leaving Bethlehem, the house of bread, to go and live with such people. Notice some more specifics about his family in verse 2. The man's name is Elimelech, which means... God is my king. Uh, This tells us that he came from a godly home. His parents were godly people. His wife's name is Naomi, verse 2, which means pleasant. And then he had two sons. The oldest one is Mahalon and the younger one is Kilian. Mahalon means the one who is sickly or sick. Kilian means the one who is pining, uh, that is someone who is declining in health in physical health and mental capacity. If you're looking for baby names sometime later. But anyway, so I wonder who names their children sickly and and pining. But here we we are, Mahalon and Kilian. They were not only from the tribe of Judah. Uh, The text tells us that they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, which is to say that they were the original inhabitants or occupants of Bethlehem. Uh, What that tells us is that Elimelech actually came from a very aristocratic, perhaps a very rich background, and now finds himself because of famine in poverty and and dire circumstances, so much so that he takes 
his luggage and leaves with his family to go to Moab. Notice at the end of verse 2, we are told they entered the land and then the text tells us they remained there. Now quickly, a few applications for us. Uh, First of all, we have to be aware of the downward spiral of sin. What do I mean by that? Did you notice the downward spiral of this man? Perhaps the two verses didn't fully elaborate on that. First, we are told in verse 1 that he sojourned there, which is to take up a temporary residence. Then at the end of verse 2, we are told he entered the land, no longer just as a sojourner, and then no longer as a temporary resident. Thirdly and finally, we are told that he remained there. That's the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. He went there with an intention to just perhaps live on the outskirts, and then he entered the main city, and then he decides to remain there. You know, there is no such a thing as a harmless sin. Now, sin is first appealing, and then it is fascinating, and then it is enticing, and then it is all-consuming. Sin is first appealing, then it's fascinating, then it's enticing, and then it is all-consuming. But you might say, what is the sin here? Well, it was to leave the company of God's people and instead choose to reside with those who were not God's people. Many times, some of you will come and ask for some counsel as you get a job, perhaps in a different city, and you say, what do you think I should do? Well, those are times when I don't have a verse for you to look at, but I can say this. One of the first things you want to look at if you go to a new place is, can I find God's people there with whom I can fellowship with? Is there a good, godly, biblical church where I'm being transferred to or where I'm getting a job at. Oh, I know we have to be people in the world and not of it, but what Elimelech does here, in uprooting his family, he goes against God's clear instruction not to associate with the Moabites. What should he have done? Well, that brings me to the second lesson that we can take from the short two verses. He could have, should have pursued a God-honoring decision. The God-honoring thing to do would have been to remain in Bethlehem and lean on God's providence and care. Now, there is, of course, space for wise decision-making, but clearly what we find Elimelech doing was not a God-honoring decision in that sense. After all, when Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem, they run into individuals who didn't leave Bethlehem but remained there as they experienced God's provision. God did take care of them. And so let me remind you of the theme of this particular chapter. Even when God's people experience suffering, God is present in his provision and care for them as they respond to him by returning to him. That brings us, secondly, to the nature of suffering, to the nature of the suffering. What is going on? Notice verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And then she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Mahalon and Kilian also died. 
and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. The famine in the land set the scene for what is to follow, but that is not the end of the suffering that this family faces. That was just the beginning. Within months, perhaps weeks of entering Moab, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. Now, we're not told about the circumstances of his death because that's not really important. We are told that he died. But what a tragedy. This is a flourishing family of four and is now suddenly without its head, without the leader, without the breadwinner. The text does not dwell too long because the focus of this chapter is about the return of Naomi and Ruth. So it quickly moves to the next verse. The situation back home has not yet improved, which is probably why Naomi chooses to remain in Moab. It's also possible that these two sons perhaps were a part of a single adult group, were now at a manageable, manageable age, had developed an interest in two Moabite women. We don't know. Uh, it's just using our sanctified imagination. The text doesn't tell us that. But it does tell us that they end up marrying two Moabite women. Uh, there was no express forbidding of marrying a Moabite woman. They were for, forbidden from marrying the occupants of the land, which is the Canaanites, when the Israelites were rescued from Egypt. But there's no prohibition from marrying the Moabites. But considering the fact that these Moabites worshipped a different god than the Israelites, it should have been a reason enough not to pursue such a relationship. Again, the text doesn't dwell on reasoning behind marriage. We are told, however, that the names of the two women were Arpa, which means either a neck or a gazelle, perhaps having to do with the fact that she turned back and went and remained with her own people. On the other hand, Ruth means friend or friendship. Elimelech's death then brings about two more deaths. But that was not the end. Notice at the end of verse 4. They were there for 10 years. There's no mention of any children. These women, in fact, were barren, is what we can conclude. No grandchildren yet for Naomi. As if that was not enough, verse 5 tells us that Mahalon and Kilian also died. Again, no information is given about the circumstances of their death. It's just like a headline in a newspaper article, we are just told that they died. And now, Naomi is not only without her husband, she's also without her two sons. What an unimaginable tragedy for a woman to go through. All the three men that came with Naomi to Moab are dead within 10 years. Rightfully, a commentator says, Naomi's present is without men, and she has a future without hope. Her present is without men, and her future is without hope. And there's a lesson we can take even from these three verses, and the lesson is this. God does not always shield his people from suffering, but he works through them, those sufferings, for our good and for his glory. It's the reality of the fact that we live in a sinful world. Don't assume that just because you are a believer that you're shielded from the consequences of living in a sinful world. I met some of you. Uh, you tell me you are a recent believer. Well, I want to be encouraging to you and tell you the truth. The truth of the matter is if you live for the Lord, you will 
suffer. You will face difficult circumstances. So don't assume that just because you're a believer that you're shielded from the consequences of living in a fallen world. We only realize later on about God's purpose and plan, so why he allowed this to happen in Naomi's life. So what can we say is this? We are not to long for suffering, but we are to be prepared for suffering. We are to remember that through the suffering, we are to trust God, trust that God must have a good reason for what he is doing, a reason that will ultimately bring him glory, and a reason that is always, always for our good. We will suffer. But you know what is ultimately important is not that we suffer, it is how we respond to that suffering. So how does Naomi respond to the suffering that she undergoes? Uh, this is ex- essentially the text from which, I get our, from which we got our title for the tonight's lesson, which is return. Notice the number of times the word return occurs in these few verses. These 13 verses, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you go therefore wait, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where uh, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. When she, that is Naomi, saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. There are three dialogues mentioned in these few verses that take place here. You know, the book has 85 verses, as I mentioned before, and 56 of those verses contain a dialogue. Now, this being one of the longer ones that exists, this dialogue is divided into three sections. Let's look at it individually. First of all, the first dialogue, very creative title there. The first dialogue, verse 6 to verse 10. Now, this one begins by informing us of Naomi's intentions. She rises after the death of her sons, 
after 10 years of being in Moab with an intention to return to the land of Judah or Bethlehem. We're also told that she had heard while she was in Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Notice verse 6 at the end. In the midst of her grief, God provided her with a relief. The very situation for which, remember, they had left as a family earlier in verse 1 because they did not have enough food is now the reason for her to turn back and go to Bethlehem. Why? Because the text tells us that the Lord had visited his people. Uh, That expression, visited his people, is a very encouraging expression. In fact, the way that it is put here, it means the Lord intervened on behalf of his people, or the Lord came to the aid of his people. And who is the object of his help? Who is the object of his aid? It is his people. Now, his people is a term that expresses normal covenantal kind of language and relationship between a God and his people. There's perhaps a return of rain, which is why they now have food. It's also an indication of the fact that Yahweh had not given up on his people. He had not forgotten or rejected his people. Yahweh had given his people bread. The house of bread, in other words, is restocked with bread. And so she gets up and begins to make her way back to Bethlehem, verse 6. And as is normal many times, relatives come to see you off, which is how initially the daughters-in-law are portrayed. And in this first exchange, it is Naomi who speaks to both of them, and she tells them, notice verse 7, or rather verse 8, go, return each of you to her mother's house. Now, it's interesting that she does not say father's house, but mother's house. The three times that this particular phrase, mother's house, comes in, uh, mentioned in the Bible, two times mentioned in Song of Solomon, and once in the book of Genesis, it is applied in the context of love and marriage. And so Naomi is basically giving her daughters-in-law permission to marry again. Go back to your mother's house. Now that's the firm part of her instruction, and now comes the tender part. Notice the blessings, the prayers that she offers. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord show you his steadfast love, his special love, his, the Hebrew word there is hesed. Now this is not just love or kindness. This is a covenant term that is used of the God of the Bible towards his people. And in this case, the Israelites. And it means his love, his covenant, his faithfulness, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his loyalty, all wrapped up in one term, his hesed. In short, uh, this is the kind of love that goes beyond the mere requirements of a duty. May God show this kind of love to you both. That is a fascinating word. And by invoking the God of Israel, she uses the word Yahweh here, Naomi is implying that the God of Israel is not some local deity, he's not just the God of Israel, he's also the God of the entire world, including the Moabites. And then she says, verse 9, May the Lord grant that you may find rest in the... each in the house of her husband, 
Her prayer is that God may spare these Moabite women a life of restlessness and wandering and that they may find a home in which they can receive and enjoy peace and stability and fulfillment of having their daily needs met. And with that, she kisses them as they lift their voices and weep. So what is the first response going to be from these daughters-in-law? What do they say? Notice verse 10. They say, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. You see, they have lived with Naomi now for almost 10 years. So we can assume there is an affinity. There is a concern for an older widow. Naomi, perhaps by this time, is about 50 years old. So anyone older than that? Notice that at that time, the average age people lived up to was somewhere around 50. And that's where Naomi is. Uh, This may have been also a normal custom. In some of the cultures, uh, no always doesn't always mean no. Um, I remember when I first came to this country about 15 years back or 18 years back, uh, in India, if you're offering food to someone, it's offered at least three, four times uh, before we receive the food from them. And so those three times we say no, 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 no. And then if they keep insisting, we, we know that they really want to offer you food. And so not being familiar with that tradition here, first time I came here and I was offered food at someone's house, I said, no, thank you. And they just took it and went on. <laughs> uh, so you have to understand that from, in, in what is mentioned here in verse 10. And so the daughters-in-law expressed an initial desire to depart and be with Naomi. And that sets really the stage for the second interchange or the second dialogue mentioned in verse 11 to verse 14. Here we see Naomi actually makes three arguments for why they should not join her. Notice, first of all, she challenges their view of reality as she asks them two questions. Notice verse 11. Why should you go with me? The question is more of a rebuke. Why should you go with me? It is more like saying, it's really foolishness on your part to join me. Don't you see that you're better off in your own country? But the second question is even more sharper or sharp. Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? The word that NASB actually translates as womb is actually the word that is typically translated as intestines or guts. Do I have any more sons in my guts that they could become your husbands? In other words, by coming with me, you are assuming that I'm going to get married again, that I'm the only source of husbands for you, and you're assuming that you're going to wait for 20 more years to get married. Don't you see how absurd this is? Naomi, on her part, is assuming the leveret marriage, which is a practice of marrying your deceased brother's wife. She's assuming that. So the first argument she makes is she challenges their view of reality, but second argument is mentioned in verse 12. As she answers her own questions, she begins by repeating her instruction, return my daughters, be realistic, I'm too old to marry. But she says, verse 12, let's say I do get married. Now I can't imagine, I can't help but imagine Naomi a little coy, you know, perhaps even blushing a little bit in the midst of her suffering. You know, her reasoning provides a relief 
into the tension and grief and suffering that we have seen in her life so far. Let's say she says, I have a husband tonight and I have children from him. Now let's say they are boys, you know, not girls, but just boys. But even if they are boys, are you ready to wait for 20 years to get married? Are you really not going to marry because you would wait for these boys to get old? That is her second argument. Notice her third argument. Here again, she answers her own question, verse 13. No, she says, don't do that. It's harder for me than for you. Now, she may be thinking of a few things here. One option is that she probably is thinking, you on your part just have lost one man in your life. I have lost three men. Or she may be thinking, you can still conceive children if you wanted to, but I am beyond the age to conceive any children. And then she says at the end of verse 13, the Lord's hand has gone forth against me. Now here we find her blaming God for her circumstances in her life. But you might say, wasn't she the one who just a few verses back wanted to acknowledge God's sovereignty over all people groups and prayed the prayer that is mentioned in verse 7 and verse 8? And yet we find her blaming God here. Yes, she was doing those things. So it's a challenge to fully understand how then does she turn around and blame God for the circumstances in her life. But if we were to give her the benefit of the doubt, we can say that while Naomi is a believer, her faith is not as mature or fully developed as we would think. Anyone here immediately became a man was born a boy, little boy? Physically? Probably not. Anyone here just become a believer and just catapulted into becoming a mature believer the next day? No, Naomi is a believer, but her faith is not as mature and fully developed as we would like to think it is. The ladies again lift their voices and wept again, verse 14, and we see Orpah actually is convinced by Naomi's arguments. And she heads back to Moab. Orpah then is a picture of unbelief. On the other hand, we have Ruth, who remains unconvinced. In fact, the text says in verse 14, Ruth clung to her. You know that word clung first occurs not here, but in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 2.24, and there, it describes the closest relationships, relationship humanly possible, that of a husband and wife, and it's translated as joined. Ruth clung to Naomi. What incredible fortitude and faith this Moabite shows as she firmly hangs on to her mother-in-law. That brings us to the third dialogue, verse 15 to verse 18. And the tables really change here in this third exchange. Naomi opens this section, but it is Ruth that dominates this section. It's her words that occupy most of the space from verse 15 to verse 18. Look, your sister-in-law has gone back, she says, to her people and her gods. Uh, go do what she has done. And then it's followed by the first recorded words from Ruth's mouth, verse 16. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. There are a total of five statements that Ruth says or quotes 
uh, that are fascinating in what they uh, display about what's going on in Ruth's, Ruth's heart. What emerges from these statements is a powerful declaration of commitment on Ruth's part, a devotion and faithfulness that some commentators have said is virtually unparalleled. Each statement also increases in intensity. Notice, first of all, it says, and it's in a chiastic structure. Remember, chiasm is where you have a series of statements where the first statement corresponds to the last statement, and what is in the middle of those statements is really the key to understanding the rest of the statements. Notice the first statement is cast in the negative and is actually an imperative. It's a command. Do not urge me to leave or return from following you. Stop telling me to return to my own people, Naomi. The second statement and the fourth statements are focused on the location. Your final destination, she says, is my final destination. Your purpose is my purpose. Your grief is my grief. Your joy is my joy. I want to share and be a part of every experience that you have in the future. How far are you willing to go, Ruth? Where you come to the end of your life, there I want to come to the end of my life. But even that, I do not want to be the end of my commitment and devotion to you. Notice, she says, where you die, I will die, and there I shall be buried. Those are some impressive statements on what true commitment and devotion looks like. Those are impressive statements of what returning looks like, what a life of repentance looks like. Uh, she was headed in a certain direction towards her own gods, and repentance, which is the same word as return, is she now turns to the true God, turns away from the false gods, and turns true to the true God. Now, as impressive as these statements are, it's a statement in the center that tells us about the depth of true returning of Ruth. And she uses just four Hebrew words to convey the heart of her commitment. It's literally translated, your people, word one, my people, word two, your God, word three, my God, word four. Short, succinct, the most powerful of phrases that shows complete devotion and commitment on Ruth's part. McCowan, a commentator, describes this as one of the most beautiful and selfless statements in the Bible. He says Ruth's statement of commitment is unequivocal and total. She was determined to stay with Naomi, and nothing was going to separate her from Naomi apart from death, and even there, she wishes to still remain with Naomi. Daniel Block actually writes on this. I think I have a, his quote. He says, with radical self-sacrifice, she abandons every base of security that any person, let alone a poor widow, in that cultural context would have clung to. Her native homeland, her own people, even her own gods. A complete return. But even that is not the end of her statement. The fifth statement seals the commitment as she invokes the name of God, and not just any God, but the God who is in a covenantal relationship with Israel, Yahweh, as she says, thus may Yahweh do to me, and thus may he add 
surely nothing but death will separate you and me. Let Yahweh kill me if I break my word or my commitment to you. We're not very sure what the word thus there is. It could be a sign that Ruth may have shown to Naomi that both understood to mean the length and the depth of the commitment Ruth was willing to go to remain with her. You know, if we say we're going to kill someone or shoot someone, we have certain signs that we can point to that tell us what that means. Perhaps Ruth made some sign that showed to Naomi the depth of her commitment. Whatever that sign was, the words and the signs seal the deal as we read. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, the text tells us that she said no more to her. That brings us then finally to the interpretation of the suffering as we look at the last few verses. Notice verse 19. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? We're not given any details, if you notice, as to the journey from Moab to Bethlehem, because the focus has been the two widows here and their return to Bethlehem. And now we are back where we began in verse 1, in Bethlehem, which is kind of forms a bookend, an inclusio as it, as it is called. Naomi's return is quickly noticed by uh, the folks in the city there. In fact, the word there is the city was stirred. Uh, there was excitement in the air. The same word is compared to the noise people made when, people, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the camp of the Israelites in 1 Samuel 4, when the Philistines were about to enter into a battle with the Israelites, the noise that the Israelites made looking at the Ark of the Covenant is the same word that it is used here as stirred. The city was, all the city was stirred because of her. They were surprised to see her as they asked, is this Naomi? Perhaps the years in Moab took a heavy toll on how she was looking now. Perhaps she lost a few pounds. We don't know. Perhaps some gray hair or more gray hair. The death of her husband, her two sons, the grief and the sufferings. And now perhaps she's unrecognizable. And she looks like a pale comparison to the Naomi that left 10 years back. Naomi hears that. The text doesn't tell us that they're telling her that. But the text tells us that Naomi perhaps overheard that and responds, don't call me Naomi, she says. Naomi, as we noticed earlier, was the word that meant pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Why? She gives two reasons as she proceeds to lay the blame at God's feet. She says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And how has he done that? When I left from here, I was full. I had two sons and a husband there's a double-edged sword there, full in terms of the men who were in her life, but empty in terms of the food in her stomach. Two sons and a husband, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I lost all the men in my life. But secondly, notice verse 21. The Almighty, she says, has afflicted me. The Almighty has afflicted me. That is, he has afflicted calamity on me. He has sent disaster on me. 
And for whatever reason, a reason only he knows, he has called me to account and declared me guilty. What a contrast between Ruth and Naomi. Ruth is portrayed in such glowing terms as she expresses her devotion and commitment to Naomi and to the God of the Israelites. And it feels like one moment we are taken up on a mountain and then we are exposed to Naomi's statements and it feels like we've just been dropped from that mountain as we see Naomi lays blame at God's feet. What is she missing? You know, while she has turned up empty as regards to her sons and her husband, she has a Gentile convert to show for her 10 years in Moab. And when we meet next time, we'll pick up the story there. But what lessons can we learn? But before we go there, let me just refresh your minds with the theme that we are looking at. Even when God's people experience suffering, God is present in his provision and care for them as they respond to him by returning to him. What can we learn? There's at least a few lessons that we can learn. First of all, we see that there is an appeal to return. I don't know where you are, spiritually speaking. Perhaps you're here and you say, that was a good story, and you move on with your life. Uh, This is a chapter that reminds us and that appeals to us to return to the God who created you. God's word tells us that he created everything and he owns everything. And when you respond to God with genuine repentance and faith, you're returning to the one who created you, who created you to worship him. If you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, this text is appealing to return to the one who made you and who is willing to forgive you. The psalmist says in Psalm 9 verse 10, those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken the one who seeks you. Now this is a forgiving God. He never forsakes the one who is genuinely repenting of his or her sins. And so first of all, then, this is an appeal to return. But secondly, this is a call to remain in fellowship with his people. This is a call to remain in fellowship with his people. It's not happened here, but every now and then I hear of stories from other churches where for little things, people become disappointed with what's happening in the church community and they, they leave for very trivial reasons. This is a chapter that is a good reminder to remain in close fellowship. Yes, there are believers that, that perhaps rub you the wrong way. But have you ever stopped to imagine uh, if this believer was not in my life, perhaps that particular sin would never come to the fore. Uh, this is a call to remain in fellowship. But there's also a promise to those who return. First of all, for the unbeliever, but secondly, even for the believer. And Naomi, in this case, is an example of that. God preserved her through that, through the circumstances that she went through. And we will see in the rest of the book as it unfolds uh, the kind of blessings that God blessed her with. This is a promise to those who return. And fourthly and finally, uh, this is a reminder that God works through all things. God works through all things. What a great reminder this book is and this chapter is 
that those who love God and those who are called according to his purposes, that all things work together for their good. It doesn't say all things are good, but all things work together for their good. The great reminder this chapter is also of the fact that he works through the sufferings, the challenges, the sins that we have been a part of. And he says to you and to me, confess your sins and he is just and righteous to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Perhaps you're here and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're dabbling in what you know to be truly a sin. Uh, this chapter is a great reminder that God works through those sins as you return to him, as you repent of your sins and turn to him and call out to him. A prayer that God loves to answer is this, God, forgive me of my sins. I want to honor you through my life. That is a prayer that honors God. Isn't it Joseph who said to his brothers, remember that story? As for you, you meant evil against me, he said, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Even through famine and the death of her husband and the death of her two sons, God is about to bring good out of all of that. And what he has done for Naomi, he is more than capable of doing for each one of you. Let me close our time with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the reminder from your word that those who love you, all things work together for their good and for those who are called according to your purpose. Lord, you are a gracious and an amazing God, a God who is quick to forgive us, a God who is merciful and gracious, a God who is so patient with us. Your word reminds us that you're patient so that we would repent and turn to you. You are patient so that that would lead us to repent. And Lord, I do pray for those of us who are here tonight. I pray that we, if we are your children, that we would neglect not fellowshipping with fellow believers. Not only that, that we would know that if we are dabbling in any sin, that we need to repent of that and turn to you and that you will forgive us. And thank you for this wonderful book as we begin to embark on this journey, as we study this book. We pray that you would change our life and transform us and change it to help us be more like your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.